1: Welcome to New Books in Irish Studies, a podcast on the New Books Network. I'm Bridget English and I'll be your host for this episode. Today I'm talking to Katrina Goldstone, author of Irish Writers in the 30s, Art, Exile and War, published by Routledge's Studies and Cultural History series in 2021. So welcome Katrina. Uh, First, we'll start with just asking Katrina, can you um, tell me a little bit about yourself and kind of what led you to
0: this project? I will indeed. And thank you so much, uh, Bridget and New Books uh, Network, for having me on to talk about the book. Uh, Well, uh, it has been a circuitous route, uh, both in terms of my own personal uh, journey to get to the book. Um, And I suppose... I had, uh, for many years, worked on historical research projects while also being a journalist, reviewer, communications professional. And in fact, uh, I was, was we were, I was earlier a fashion journalist in London and writing for different women's magazines. And I suddenly uh, became very interested through uh, a a book by Professor Dermot Keogh about Irish government policy towards Jewish refugees. And I switched uh, completely and came back to Ireland uh, to do a master's on the topic of Irish government uh, policy towards Jewish refugees in World War II, and that was in the 90s. And that ignited a passion for history, in particular, hidden histories, underserved histories uh, and histories of minorities. So um, I did did my master's and subsequently uh, a documentary was made based on my research by the Irish filmmaker uh, Louis Lenton. And I continued then to look into different aspects of Irish Jewish history and uh, Irish experience in Ireland. And I became interested uh, in... The the, the the idea that uh, where were where were radical Irish Jews in the little bit of history that we had about the Jewish minority. Um, so I was moving into doing looking at local Jewish community history, if you like. and I went to interview a man called Aubrey Yudakin. Uh, again, this was a project that was sort of floating. Uh, amongst many other projects at the time. and uh, I can still actually see this man in my mind's eye and this this moment when we were just having a basic conversation about his experience and his in the Jewish community. and he suddenly became very emotional, uh, talking about his brother, Leslie Dacon I mean literally he he was beginning to to well up uh, talking about his brother who was a poet an educator a filmmaker um, and also a journalist and and he was so sad about the fact that at the end of his life his brother had not really gotten recognition which he felt that he deserved and this 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 has just just stuck with me at the time. Uh, also, uh, you know, he indicated uh, the socialist politics of his brother. So this was of interest to me. But really, I left. I I said, interesting man, move on. Okay. Uh, but it just... It it was the first lodging of the existence of of Deacon and the beginnings of a seed of an idea, which which took many many years to come to the uh, the form, uh, which it has done. I still was looking for uh, Jews and you know role of Jews and socialism in Ireland. There had been some writing um, and research done for instance, by Manus O'Riordan, who was uh, a a trade union researcher. He was interested in Jewish uh, roles and people in the Spanish Civil War, such as Morris Levitas. So that was one milestone. I was sort of trying to find and dig out these people that I wasn't finding too much evidence of their existence, apart from the likes of Manus O'Riordan's research. And then... uh, I suppose another uh, seminal milestone was the fact that the Dakin Archive opened up in 2011. So Dakin has been brewing around in my mind. I've done bits of research, but I haven't actually gotten uh, gotten too much material. So then in the National Library of Ireland, who, who uh, were... Aubrey Yedakin had deposited the archives that both um, himself and Dakin's daughter Melanie had lovingly uh, kept on to, and it, it, it's it's very large. There's boxes and boxes and boxes of it. Uh, so in 2011, I get access into this uh, large archive uh, with the idea there there you know there'll be something of interest, and also I had sort of dabble with the idea, I'll I'll do a small book, a sort of local ethnic focus, you know, on this sort of local minority history with Dakin. And th- then the minute I got into the archive, well not the minute but <laughs> the minute I got to grips with the material uh, and was presented with these boxes upon boxes of letters and scrapbooks, I could see uh, working my way through the material, that uh, the idea uh, then uh, sort of morphed into a Dakin circle, if you like, or the Dakin connections, because the archive was so much on his connections to other writers, to other Irish writers, to international writers. And when I'm doing my talks on, uh, on Dakin or about the book, I mean, I very often feature a slide which is this enormous scrapbook. Now, in fact, he's, he has two two enormous scrapbooks um, because, uh, as well as all the uh, letters and magazines he accumulated, but these are scrapbooks, uh, reviews of his writing and um, of things, uh, there's others about things that interest him. And through... Looking through this the scrapbook, which starts off in the nineteen sixties, towards the end of his life, he died in nineteen sixty four. There are all these. Um, There's sort of PR articles. The Irish in London, uh, Irish tourism. Uh, he, you know, he was trying to promote Ireland in in London uh, through different holiday articles. So all of this is at the beginning of this huge, it's like a Dickensian uh, ledger nearly, but fatter, very fat. And through working my way through this, it's almost like you're doing a time travel, if you like. And so all these uh, commercial art, journalism articles suddenly give way. And uh, when you get about... a halfway to a third of the way through the scrapbook there's um there's polemical left-wing articles there's Dakin's reviews on on folk ballads there's his cutting out of other writers that he was interested in Uh, there's a there's suddenly there was a whole change in tone and in content that first of all led me to other writer comrades of his, but also read, led me to the types of little publication that they were being published in. So I got, got this idea to go from a straight life story to reflections on memory and history uh, and a broader cultural history through um, access to the archives. And, and we could talk a, a, a little more on that as well.
1: Great, thanks so much. Yeah, it's a, it's a fascinating journey, that I think that led you to this to this writer, like as you say, the the personal connection that you had with his brother, and how emotional he became and uh, speaking about him. But I'm wondering if you can say a little bit more. Like, I think it's really interesting that you um, based your research, you know, on even though it was based on this single man's archive, uh, that it led you to so many connections between other figures and other writers. Um, so I'm wondering if you could just introduce us a little bit to the other writers like Charles Donnelly and Ewert Milne, Michael Sayers. Just maybe explain how they are connected to um, Dakin and maybe why you think they're so significant or
0: what those connections are. Absolutely. Uh, well, as I say, you know, Dakin acted like a, a kind of a literary Pied Piper. I mean, I had, a, I had already been aware... Uh, of uh, Ewart Milne and Charles Donnelly through the work of my friend and uh, great friend, uh, poet Gerald Daw, because he had written in a literary history uh, uh, reader and essays about Charles Donnelly. Now, of the four that I'm focusing on, this sort of quartet of anti-fascist writers, uh, I would say that Donnelly has remained... Uh, valued and remembered and would still be uh, in literary studies uh, on the Spanish Civil War, certainly in the Irish context, he he was already known and he was already uh, acknowledged as a, a very precocious poet who had been uh, you know, cruelly, uh, uh, cut off in his life, uh, in just his early twenties in the Spanish Civil War, so they're all, um, they're all of a vintage, uh, in terms of coming to maturity in the nineteen thirties. And Dakin and and is born nineteen twelve, uh, Sayers nineteen eleven, Uhart Mills that little bit older, and of course Charles Donnelly never gets beyond the the. The, his 20 and 21. Uh, but so they' they're coming of age if you like in the 1920s they're all poets with ambitions and they're all poets who are interested in politics now and they espouse this in very different ways as as I delineate in the book but uh, as I say uh, Gerald Daw had already written about the 30s poets Uh, Irish 30s poets and included Milne but again he had not had access to the Dagon Archive which really was a a way of mapping the broader connections if you like. Now there was also uh, H. Gustav Klaus, the German academic whose book uh, Strong um, Words, Brave Deeds was about the the international brigader Thomas O'Brien, uh, who was also wrote a po- poetry on the Spanish Civil War, and he also referred to Milne and uh, to, to to Dakin and categorised them as left wing poets in the thirties. Um, so he was someone who began the sort of intellectual journey, if you like, to 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 sort of shift. My thinking, I could see that there were tantalising glimpses of, and 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 in the case of Gerald Daw it was much more uh, literary analysis. But um, these were sort of uh, markers, or 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 sort of uh, paving the way. But without the archives, and then what they led to, uh, it would have been difficult to write the book in the manner in which I which I have done. So they were all ambitious to be writers and poets in the 1930s. They left an Ireland, which they couldn't find as a, it was a hostile terrain, uh, both uh, socially and politically. I mean, you have Sayers and Dakin, who are both uh, Jewish at a time when there is uh, more febrile anti-jewish rhetoric in irish society and at the, and there's also uh, an atmosphere of anti-communism so these writers were looking to uh, they're looking to other uh, forms of inspiration um if you like and also you know they're 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 looking to find uh a more uh, a more comfortable milieu economically, culturally, when they when they leave Ireland, but uh, they their friendships wax and wane over time. But when they get to London, they're they're quickly um, introduced and quickly become part of very lively and different milieu. So, as I say, I had examples with H. Gustav Klaus and with Gerald Daw of the possibilities of the writers. But these expanded when I was able to get in and see the extent of the Dakin archive, which then went off in different tentacles. And I mean, even just, I hadn't initially had Michael Sayers on my radar at all. Um, But when I I saw an obituary of him, I realised he he would have been a contemporary of Dakin. And I was very lucky. A couple of Google searches, I got, I found his son, who at that time was putting together his father's archive. And he then very, very kindly met with me. I interviewed him and he gave me extracts from various forms of uh, uh, notes and a correspondence that his father had. But as I say, I just wouldn't have been able to map the connections without the archive in the same way. And this idea that Irish writers were, these were a small group. I mean, I'm I'm not, you know, I'm not going to exaggerate, they they weren't, you know, uh, but at the same time, through their their worldview they were connecting outwards they were looking uh, in, in with an internationalist eye the Spanish Civil War of course utterly galvanized and utterly uh, motivated them and they became part of circles in London that were also engaged with uh, you know the Spanish cause or cause of Republican Spain so uh, you know I was then able to look, and examine their poetry and their polemical writings um, through these prisms. Uh, once I had mapped, if you like, the 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 interconnections, uh, if that makes right. sense. Oh,
1: well, no, that makes perfect sense. And I'm wondering also about, uh, or it might be interesting to our listeners, is what kind of what uh, you've said a little bit about um, the Dakin Archive, but... I'm wondering, uh, you write in the book so beautifully about this eclectic mix of uh, children's rhymes and articles on lullabies and plays and book reviews that are contained there, and I'm wondering, first of all, what are some, some of maybe the more interesting discoveries, and what was your process in going into the archive in terms of what m- kind of methods did you use to kind of sift through all this and make these, these maps and connections that you're discussing?
0: Well, uh, I started off, and I, I I have it still somewhere with a thing that I call the scribble diagram. And when I got a new name or a publication, uh, I'd sort of make this um, almost modern art squiggle, uh, and then it became it then it became an Excel sheet, <laughs> uh, but. So so when I when I got in and I could see these little mosquito journals that uh that they can contributed to and I was able then to see if I could track some of those now a certain amount of material uh the national Ar- uh, library you know is fantastic fantastic resource so they had a lo- they you know I could look at the Irish material get copies of the little uh, the little uh, newsletter that Dakin edited with Charles Donnelly, the Irish Front, I got a few, few copies of those where I could see the political writing and I could see how they were trying to make connections between Irish workers and... And uh, British workers on as uh, you know, op- opposing the idea of imperialism and in their in their um, their uh, news editorials, how they were trying to make these links. I mean these are small, obscure uh, bulletins uh, And you know, I was able to start making columns of where, where did they contribute, where were the overlaps between the publications that they contributed to? Um, and at the same time, uh, through sort of ancillary reading and research, I was I was starting to see where this fitted with broader left cultures in the nineteen thirties. So, for instance, Carrie Nelson, uh, whose book "Revolutionary Memory" on the poetry of the left in uh, in the United States, I was able to see. The phenomenon of what they call worker poems or topical poems, for instance, right? And Leslie Dakin wrote under a pseudonym for Irish Republican uh, magazines or for the Republican Congress newspaper, and his pseudonym was Ned E. Kiernan, right? And I give you a little example. Uh, He He covered uh, the accident of a worker on a British uh, digging tunnels in Britain, in London, as part of a little news item, right, Uh, in 1936. And then he wrote a poem called Lament for Sean Reardon, which appeared, first of all, in the Republican Congress newspaper, which was a little newspaper for the left-wing uh, Irish Republicans in London and uh, part of a, a, a broader group that had been set up in Ireland in the mid-30s, with, but, but fractured and splintered. So you get an incident from real life, which is about workers' exploitation and the death of a worker. That's written as a news item. Then uh, it's transformed into a poem by Dakin. And finally, it's included in his socially committed anthology, Goodbye Twilight, which is also published by 1936. Uh, now, back to the scrapbook, I wouldn't have known that Ned E. Kiernan was in fact Leslie Dakin if I hadn't copped on that the um, uh, the little extracts and cuttings he had pasted in where he underlines it, that's his That's his own name. And I was able then to confirm this is what he used as a pseudonym. That, again, coming from the scrapbook. Uh, And as I say, the ancillary writing uh, with the likes of uh, Kerry Nelson uh, talking about and writing about workers' poems and, uh, you know, this as a phenomenon, I could see where Dakin was interconnecting with this. Now, I mean, there's a lot of hard graft every week, every you know um, evening you can get into the National Library or the weekends to work through all this. But at the same time, I also was very fortunate to get various, I can only call them a sort of spooky coincidences of caches of hidden letters that turned up through, through friends. Um, uh, for instance, uh, my friend... Dr. Carla King, who, who's written um, an extraordinary biography of Michael Davitt. Her, her grandfather was Sean Keating and May Keating, and they were part of radical bohemian artistic circles in the 30s as well and socialised with uh, some of the people I was writing about. Now, when Carla's father, Justin Keating, died, a number of, uh, of uh, groups of letters uh, letters of Ewart Milne, for instance, were contained. Uh, how how her fa- they were in her father's archive, we're not sure, but that came to me, uh, and I was let have sight of those. And then Carla herself found another bunch of letters, which were in fact letters which Leslie Dakin had written to various writers, asking them to contribute to his. Proletarian Poetry Anthology, Goodbye Twilight, which was published by the um, the Communist Party of Great Britain uh, Publication House, Lawrence and Wishart in nineteen thirty six. So sometimes you get these extraordinary, um, the out of the blue, revelations through caches of letters. But again, so much of it, uh, the markers were laid by the archive. Um, the other thing that I also realised, because at the end of his life, Leslie Dakin was sort of, I think in a way, his reputation was almost, um, it was reduced because he because of his writing about uh, games and toys and street art and street uh, play. This is the way he was recalled in his obituaries. You you got hardly a hint of the radical past at all. And this idea of the jovial toy man. But through extended reading and looking at the idea of a cultural democratic vernacular, which ideas like that were being discussed in the 30s, I came to the conclusion that his interest in street rhymes and folk ballads and songs were also an interest... In democratic forms of culture, if you like, they weren't—they weren't just eccentric. Uh, it, when you put them in a different context of his of his political allegiances, but the way that that they were interpreted at the end of his life was, oh yes, he was—he was a great expert on toys. Yes, he was a great expert on toys, but that—that uh, that didn't necessarily. Exclude or, or to my way of thinking, shouldn't have excluded an assessment of him as a sort of uh, much more a, a cultural maven or cultural uh, renegade. At one level, he he wasn't considered in that way at the end of his life, and I suppose this is part of the the the, the sorrow, if you like, of his brother that so many of his projects, including. His, uh his hope to write an Irish Jewish novel. these weren't you know they were they were sort of swept aside or erased if you like uh, in his in his afterlife. Uh, but so look uh, as I say, sometimes you' an awful lot of it is sweat and hard graft in terms of applying uh, your way through uh, through these uh, box upon box and then of course, suddenly something comes to you like a gift from out of the blue as well that i mean i can't uh, i cannot uh, i can't say how anybody has that luck or doesn't have that luck but um, i certainly was very lucky in getting a number of pieces of archival material coming to me either from friends or relatives uh, of the people i was writing about which again added another strand to, uh, to the story.
1: Right. Yeah, that's so fascinating, and I'm just, I can only imagine how many countless hours you spent trying to piece all this together. But as you say, like it's wonderful to have friends and uh, his family members or family members of the circle that you're talking about uh, giving you letters and things like that. At least, I suppose you're in the National Library, so you have a beautiful place to work if if nothing else. Um, So I was wondering if you could also uh, talk about, maybe you've talked a lot about the circle itself, but maybe um, some of the the things that you were discussing, you discussed in the book about the way that this circle really connects with some of the larger things that were happening at the time in terms of uh, like the political and intellectual life of Ireland and England in the 1930s, but particularly maybe some of the, their interactions in the London interwar cultural coteries, like the friendships with people like T. S. Eliot, uh, Samuel Beckett, William Carlos Williams, um, publications such as the Criterion. Um, uh, one of the mo- what are some of the most interesting things you learned, um, by approaching this period? Because I think one of the fascinating things about this book, I will say, is that it's approaching this period from a kind of less researched path. So I think it illuminates the period in a in a much different way. Um, so maybe if you could just say a little bit about, uh maybe some
0: of those friendships or connections with more well-known writers? Absolutely. Um, When I I started off and uh, was thinking of this uh, and began to get into the archive and make these connections, I also, uh, you know, started to look at biographies or the collected letters of a number of the people that I knew the writers had friendships with. And uh, it was... I called them the men in the footnotes, and uh, we'll talk about why it is mostly men a little later. But um, the the idea that they got, you know, Dakin appears in Samuel Beckett's uh, various volumes of his correspondence. Uh, Michael Sayers, who was mentored, really, by T.S. Eliot, is also, you know, some of the material of letters or in the collected letters of of, of great men, as you might say, or the great literary uh, men of the day. Of course, Samuel Beckett had been a lecturer of um, uh, deacons in Trinity, and um, Sayers had also come across Beckett via the Trinity connection, though apparently uh, Sayers was only uh, a year in Trinity. So that relationship was begun very early on. And um, Beckett was a very, he was a very generous man to Dakin. Uh, He was also encouraging, while sometimes being critical. Uh, He he wouldn't have praised, uh, he wouldn't have praised him just for the sake of it. Uh, And in fact, in the 30s, his main critique in, when he wrote under, I think it was the, Pseudonym Andrew Baylis, an, an essay about Irish writing that, Dakin was a poet when his politics let him, uh, but throughout his life they continued, uh, you know, to, to keep in contact. Uh, T. S. Eliot, I think it, there's a it's fascinating, obviously because of the controversy with T. S. Eliot, uh, latterly uh, in regards to anti-Semitism, but Sayers actually wrote to T. S. Eliot as a as a young Lad, a callow youth, if you like, uh, before even he went to London, and um, and he showed him his poems, and when uh, Sayers goes to London in the early thirties, uh, T. S. Eliot uh, very much takes him under his wing. Uh, you have letters of, uh, of, of sort of fatherly advice. Get as much out of life as you can and enjoy yourself alongside sort of literary analysis. Because Sayers has obviously written to him uh, 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 with the sort of um, <laughs> the optimism of youth where he's talking about himself and Joyce and Proust and comparators, I'm not saying that he's comparing himself to them but he's obviously made a reference to how is he going to find his writing voice and T.S. Eliot uh, you know, replies to him and says well don't worry too much about that, you'll you'll know and uh, you know about uh, warns him about being imitative but not only that, in a practical sense more than anything else, T.S. Eliot uh, gets him uh in as a as a drama reviewer for the criterion which in the interwar years is a, is a, an influential cultural periodical and also what was fascinating are the networks around these periodicals there is another uh magazine of arts and letters called the new english weekly and this is how sayers uh is introduced to george orwell because both of them are contributors to the new English Weekly. And it's through uh, another reviewer, Rainer Hempenstall, that they uh, they eventually end up fl- uh, sharing a flat together uh, in 1935 for about six, seven months or, or more. So uh, what was fascinating was seeing not only that they're coming into the orbit of these influential cultural Sayers more than any, to be honest, at this point, uh, are coming into the orbit of of the, these uh, cultural uh, uh, very significant figures, but they're in the 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 sociable the sociable milieu of the periodical networks, as as you would. So that's how they are making other relations and how. Sayers, for instance, as I say, comes to share with um with George Orwell and Rayner Hempenstall. Now, on the other side, Donnelly and uh and Deakin are in the Irish Republican circles. Uh, uh Sayers at this point is not so vehemently either politically activist or anti fascist as he becomes uh after 1939. At this point, he has been more acknowledged within a more mainstream uh, culture, if you like. And um, sorry, I just got a, a frog in my throat. <coughs> Excuse no me. No worries. <laughs> uh, just take <coughs> take a minute. Sure. That yeah, uh, take uh, as long as you <coughs> need. Now, I don't know what's happened there. No worries. Um. Anyway, uh, I might have to just get um, another bit of water. I'll just try and yeah. rest Let for a just, okay. Can you pause for a minute? Yeah, I'll pause for a second. Um, so we have Donnelly and Dakin who are in the Irish Republican uh, political milieu and also <clears throat> they come into contact with the left-wing cultural infrastructure as represented by a magazine uh, called Left Review. And Donnelly uh, writes some pieces for Left Review before he goes to Spain. But also, again, this idea of the networks or the periodical networks. So uh, Montague Slater is a writer who is on the editorial board of Left Review. He's a a good friend of Dakin and Donnelly. So they are are in a different cultural atmosphere, if you like. But both the Left Review and Lawrence and Wishart, the publishing house which published Dakin, they are in a a cultural infrastructure which is trying to promote ideas about proletarian literature, which is is writing about anti-fascism, they are ho- they are putting the, the debates about uh, the role of a writer, uh, socially committed literature. These are the the ideas that are um, in their pages. They had a nineteen thirty six April um, edition, which was dedicated to Irish freedom, uh, and Donnelly wrote in that and Pater O'Donnell. Um, the novelist also wrote for that, so it's almost like these parallel. There are these parallel cultural and political circles that they are, they are tapping into. They are becoming involved with, sometimes as part of these periodical networks, uh, or through um, you know friendships, political alliances, and. Um, you know, it's a it, it's it's sort of extraordinary, and one of the things that is so striking is also about the liveliness of the era and how uh, it leaps off the page. I mean, Dakin has a lovely tribute uh, to this these these days of of um, dream and struggle, heroic days of dream and struggle, as he called it. You know, where they're they're recreating the atmosphere, they're running from meeting to meeting. There's this this energy is palpable. The urgency of the Spanish Civil War and the action needed to to support it through the Spanish medical aid uh, movement, which Ewart Milne was involved in as a medical courier, for instance. But uh, there's just these uh, vignettes that uh, that that leap off the page, and then later, of course, um. Milne and then the posthumous poetry of Charles Donnelly will evoke uh, the the poetry of witness of the Spanish Civil War. Um, but it's I suppose what was also striking is the generosity with which these other writers displayed to them as well I mean particularly uh, the generosity of TS Eliot to Michael Sayers as a sort of callow youth, And uh, it's certainly um, intriguing. Uh, But despite all that encouragement, Sayers then just leaves and goes to America in 1937. And of course, then he becomes very much involved with anti-fascist investigative journalism. But he was hugely encouraged by Eliot. And as I say, from a practical point of view and also the cultural, that he was getting a uh, a platform in within the criterion, uh, you know, this was this was fascinating to me, uh, for sure. Great,
1: yeah, especially since it, it seems like that was their their way of kind of uh, like those connections that they make end up, you know, maybe not in an overt way, but influencing um, those wider circles. Um, so I was also wondering, you you described like the economic and cultural factors driving emigration at this period especially like the censorship acts that not only banned books that were found to be obscene but also made it illegal to uh, buy sell or distribute these publications in ireland and i was wondering how did maybe the how are these writers how did this impact the way these writers thought about ireland or wrote about ireland
0: well taken in, in particular uh retained an enormous affection for Ireland and alongside his uh his poetry of protest if you like in the with the the sort of stuff he wrote uh within goodbye twilight and elsewhere he also as he got older he wrote uh, i mean rather extravagantly affectionate <laughs> poems about the landscapes of Ireland i mean he loved he he loved Ireland he came back frequently he went on holidays sometimes with the actor Cyril Cusack and Wicklow if he could. Yet at the same time, of course, there's ambivalence. And for instance, in the introduction to Goodbye Twilight, uh, the, the socially committed anthology, he does write of a stultifying uh, effect in Ireland and, and indeed directly about stultifying effect of censorship in the introduction. Um there was something also that comes out that it wasn't just those very concrete factors, but there was also uh, apparent uh, a, a sort of the conformity and the enforcement of conformity, and uh, particular where that was linked to an anti-communism or an opprobrium against socialism. You know, these writers were outsiders in the Irish society. Uh, and to a greater or lesser extent uh, re- retained affection you know which was also leavened with um, the recognition that they that they couldn't they couldn't thrive there um, as I say Dakin maintained his links and was frequently back and forth um Donnelly of course didn't didn't live long enough to come back and and see where his place might be or may not be. Uh, but there is there's a critique. I mean, Sayers could be very bitter and and, and uh, of all of them I think uh, he had a more ambivalent attitude. When you're looking at the position of Sayers and Dakin, both as um there as Jewish within an Irish society, that um in the nineteen thirties, as as I mentioned in the book The Anti Semitic Rhetoric, whether it's coming in religious publications or um in other forms of of polemic, seems to be shriller. Uh, And then, of course, there's the the very practical idea of where will they have an outlet for their work and for their ideas. And the fact that they were swimming against the tide, if you like, there just wasn't going to be the same breadth of possibility for publication, um, generally. And in fact, generally, there's limitation. But if you're also uh, 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 of, a, of a minority or of um, a non conformist uh, bent as such, then it's going to be harder for you to find out. Because, it, you know, there's the idea of how the, the culture has been shaped in the 1930s. This is this decade which is still very um, underserved by. There's not a stand-alone history of it. So if you're how how the society is developing post-independence and post-civil war and the battle, if you like, for 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 not just the political battle but the cultural and social values, uh, and you and you have this as well in terms of women's position and and women's rights. So these writers are in the bigger atmosphere which impacts on them. I mean. Uh, Dakin has a very um it's a short little story that he published in New English English Weekly, which is called Angela, but it's about how uh the parish priest warns a young woman off a friendship with uh, with a young man who has socialist ideals. And it's it's a little sort of vignette, if you like. I mean it's it's uh a snapshot of how uh power could be exerted. And I mean, Emmett O'Connor has written on the anti-communist atmosphere in Ireland, uh, you know, in its uh, specific essay and in broader uh, work on the left in Ireland. And this, this stifling could take all sorts of different forms, not just cultural, but societal. Who were you seen with, who you were associating with? So as well as the larger uh, infrastructure, if you like, uh, you also had, from what I can gather, looking at uh, the, the, some of the reasons they're they're talking about leaving Ireland. It's it's not just um, a, a, a broader repression of cultural ideas, if you like, but it's also the way that that is can come right down to uh, daily interactions, like the story that Dakin has of the young woman been warned or oh, don't be seen walking out with him I mean it's not it's a cultural it's a cultural report on this uh type of reinforcement of non of of conformity and there's little gems of that uh this is all part of what makes the journey but you see they go to London and they get, and they get there with optimism at the same time and as I say Dakin retained an immense affection uh, a, a huge affection for Ireland and and uh you know he he continued to have that to, to to the end of his life now I think it was his daughter described to me that he recreated in the basement of his house a sort of Irish uh um little not she been, uh, that's not that but he had lobster nets and he had all sorts of Irish memorabilia uh in a in a den in the in the bottom of the house, which were you know uh, recreating a sort of a stage, almost it sounds to me like a stage Irish set, if you like, or whatever. But this deep affection that he had, and at the same time the ambivalence, um, his attempts to to write an Irish Jewish novel to 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 put forward a Jewish representation in his own right, which never which he never managed, you know, at the end of his life, he, he had a manuscript that had been, had various uh, lives, had been a radio play. And then in the in the 1930s, 39, he was published in the Dublin magazine, extracts of this potential Irish Jewish novel. So at the same time, he wanted to assert a uh, Jewish identity within an Irish context on the political side Lots of ambivalence, and at the same time, a deep affection for for the countryside and the landscape uh, and songs of Ireland.
1: Great. Yeah, that's so fascinating about the the little Irish diorama in his um, in his apartment. Uh, so I'm, I'm wondering, like, I mean, maybe this is a, a question that is, is hard to answer, but why you think these writers are like seen as are kind of like their achievements and influences are less remembered in Ireland. Do you think it's partially because of the leftist politics or maybe because, as you mentioned, uh, this historical period isn't as um, written about than other periods or what do you, what do you see as, you know, maybe some of the reasons why they were under, uh, is it because they left Ireland maybe like, why were they underappreciated?
0: Oh it's 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 a complex interplay of many of those factors and I think that exactly as as you've uh, as you mentioned there uh there is the idea that the 30s as a decade is it is not uh, uh, you know we haven't got full histories uh, you know there's uh, there's only a, a more, uh, a greater um, interest in scholarship now g- coming forth as such. That That is one aspect of it. I think certainly their leftist stance is another. And the fact that they lived away from Ireland for most of their lives, even though Dakin was so often back and forth, you know. And uh, But I think Donnelly, of course, has still maintained a position within a, you know a, a substrand of spanish civil war poetry um, within you know the the few irish uh, poets uh, who who come within that and are included still and he is included still in spanish civil war uh, anthologies or would would have been in the last 10 years i think th- what is fascinating and what is what is heartening at the same time is it's also about a conceptualization and the idea of an Irish radical diaspora and looking at those who went away, not just their position in regards Irishness in the host societies where they migrate migrate to. But now this idea of transnational radical networks or Irish radical diasporas where the people can be reintegrated. And you have, for instance, you know, this is becoming uh, more common to as a lens of analysis. I mean, it's somebody like Morris Casey uh, and uh, I think it's Mo Moulton also looking at the Irish emigration phenomenon, but also uh, putting it into the idea of um, how the you know this can contribute back to Ireland rather as regarding only what takes place in Ireland as the as the focus of a narrower history, if you like, and I think the I mean this is marvelous now to to look at it not just in in, in a case of Irish emigration history, but in a in a case of um, what the the links are between the ideas of radical diasporas, and as I say, Morris Casey, uh, you know, has recently finished his PhD, and he's he is very much, and some of the younger scholars looking at, at conceptualising, is going to change the idea. But for sure, they're left as politics, and for sure, the fact that they didn't live here. But what I'm I'm going the opposite way at one level, if you like. What I wanted to look at as a cultural history is Irish writers' role in left cultures in the 1930s. So I wanted to, to see, can I map them and plug them into these broader networks uh, through, through the support of the Spanish Civil War, through the ideas of a socially committed literature. So So there... It's, it's sort of a reversal at one level, but it's an attempt to place them within a broader uh, conceptualization um, of, a, of a strand of cultural history, which is about uh, anti-fascist cultural movement or, or, or and/or left-wing ideas and culture as resistance in a time of crisis. You know, and a reaction to the rise of fascism. Where do they fit, and where where is their writing and their activism within fitting within in the English speaking context? Where does it match their alliances with, with the British anti-imperialists or with the uh, those uh, supporting? There's a the, the Spanish Civil War. There's a photograph which uh, the historian. Uh, Emmett O'Connor found in the Moscow archives and he's he's used it uh, on the cover of his his latest book but he sent it to me a good few years ago and I mean it's just a marvelous photograph and when he sent it to me he didn't realize that uh, Ewart Milne and Leslie Dakin were in the photograph he just said look you know Uh, Do do you recognise anyone here? And of course, it's a photograph of Irish Republicans at the Trafalgar Square at a demonstration in favour of uh, the Republican uh, of Spain. I think it's 1938, a rally in Trafalgar Square. And there's a huge banner saying, Irish Republicans greet Spanish Republicans, smash all imperialisms. And I think it's you know, it's a it's a visual image that encapsulates the different alliances and uh you know, smash all imperialisms. That's the overall message. Uh Irish Republicans, Greek, Spanish Republicans, and in the front row, uh, there's Ewart Milne at one end, and then Leslie Dakin is standing beside one of only two women in the rest of the of, of the group. Um, so uh that you know i suppose it's a distilled it's a distilled version of the of the of the alliances that they were making and also how they were the irish were bringing into british socialist circles their ideas they had they had some purchase obviously uh uh with anti-imperialist <laughs> credentials because of irish uh, uh, extraordinary history against the british empire and and revolution um so it's interesting how they were in in their little um political uh, newsletters making comparisons they're 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 bringing in their historical experience uh and then they're melding it to the current situations of fights against fascism or 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 imperialism
1: wow yeah that's so fascinating about the how that photograph epitomizes kind of your, your work here. Uh, but I think it opens up things in really fascinating ways as well in terms of, you know, really enhancing and um, nuancing those those connections, uh, kind of like you say, from Ireland in, in the wider sphere. Um, so I know we've touched on this a little bit, but in the opening section of the book, you describe how women writers in the left are difficult to locate. Um, and while there are no women... Writers in your in the main group that you focus on, uh, you do discuss at length women involved in the um, in international causes like anti-fascism, including uh, novelist Margaret Barrington, uh, Rosamond Jacob, journalist Marion Mitchell, suffragette Hannah Sheehy-Skeffington, among others. So I was wondering if you could explain a little bit about um, why women writers on the left are hard to locate. And maybe some of the re- reasons why you cho- chose these women, or even just discussing more generally, what are some challenges facing women in Ireland at this time?
0: Well, uh, the challenges were immense, <laughs> and and you marvel at you marvel at their energy and their bravery and courage to um, to tackle these. To be honest with you, I mean on the. On the optimistic side or positive side, uh, at at one level, um, uh, I think that uh, figures uh, like the the suffragist um Hannah Sheehy Skeffington, um, you know and. Others, some women have been very well served by their biographers and by historians here. So there is the extraordinary work of Margaret Ward, who's done not only her biography, but continued to do edited, uh, you know, journalism and writings of Hannah Sheehy Skeffington. You know, so the and also with Rosamond Jacob, who again, thought of as, as a lesser figure, but sort of brought out of um some type of obscurity with Leanne Lane's work. So, um at one level some some of the women have been well served, but uh from my point of view, I mean the one of the biggest obstacles is the archives. So, whilst I had the extraordinary good fortune to have a huge archive that then opened up uh, other avenues of research to me, uh there I got stories of people who I might have been interested. I would have loved to have added. uh Mae Keating, for instance, as an activist, uh, married to Sean uh, Keating, and very active within the um, the work on the the Spanish Civil War Aid Committee, the Women's Committee, and also, from what I can gather, so many other causes from her granddaughter, uh, Carla King. But she there was no there was no archive for her uh ironically i think some other members of the family i don't know what anyway it there was no archive uh so you know you're you're left with um trying to make if you haven't got the full archives it's very it's very tricky now you can go you can go other ways at it but uh you know uh, I just felt that I couldn't necessarily do them the same amount of justice, and I suppose the other aspect of this was, in a way, in the in the concept or the the way that I was the methodology or ways of framing the book, uh, it was harder to find women uh, necessarily uh, f- going with all the 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 categories, if you like, so that. Um, the main obstacle was certainly finding archives as such. Either the women had already been uh, uh, well served or the, the material that I would have liked to give a broader um, uh, in-depth uh, uh, research uh, to to contextualise them properly, I suppose, was not there Um now, in terms of the societal, obviously, uh, I mean Hannah Sheehy Skeffington is writing in nineteen thirty six in in English, uh, the New England Weekly, about how um Irish women are now being pushed back that the that the the their role in in revolutionary movements uh is then been disregarded, and uh, she's doing a lot of campaigning around the 1937 constitution, but also the uh, the legislation around employment, which is putting women back in the marriage bar uh, as well. And she's actually, uh, she I think it's called a stock taking on the position of Irish women. She writes about this and she writes in her correspondence to English suffragettes and comrades, uh, comrades from years previously of what's happening in that decade, uh, when uh, the the promise and the hope for a much more egalitarian position for women uh, is been uh, reneged on, or certainly has just been completely uh, discarded. So um, where I did find, uh, and what I found fascinating is, is some of the references that she makes is to that the Irish... Is proceeding along a fascist model, and some of the women that she writes to, she's talking about these developments. I know this, we're talking about the mid 1930s here, proceeding a, a, like a fascist model in relation to the role of women in the home and in relation to putting them back to domestic roles and and not um, positions of agency, which they had already demonstrated. So she, she is. Uh, certainly she's making connections between the European situation and strands of fascism in regards to the position of women. And she's talking about this in relation to uh, to uh, the way uh, the scenario is unfolding um, in Irish society. But at the same time, she's also making these links with, um terms of the Spanish Civil War. I was able to find more material in terms of her role on the Women's Aid Committee for uh sp- specifically supporting Irish uh, international brigaders but obviously uh politically aligning uh with those supporting republican Spain so i i was fascinated to find this and this is the practical work and uh, because in the in the way i'm approaching the cultural history i would include women's journalism i looked at you know her articles in relation uh Also, to different causes uh, throughout the 1930s, as I say, this this comparator she's making with what's happening uh, with with the rise of fascism, which is surprising. And you sort of um, your eyes uh, pop open when you're looking at some of this, but it's just this is how they were looking at she she is outward looking uh to europe looking at the rise of fascism she's in correspondence with various other women activists about what's going on and she's also writing journalism and pieces which uh you know in turn may have a platform in english magazines or in magazines uh, such as time and tide focused on women's issues uh so but the, the idea that somehow it just wasn't neat, it wasn't it wasn't so easy. Also because the women, of course, faced greater uh, challenges from a point of view of being regarded as, uh, you know, uh, writers and in terms of finding outlets for publications. And she referred in a speech to the Minerva Club in, in the 30s about how the Irish women, you know, their... They're trying so hard, but in comparison to English women writers, that it's a, I think it's a, it's a brook as opposed to a flowing tide, I think was her analogy or metaphor. But that is because of the limitations and how very few Irish women writers could make a living at all, you know, being professional writers. And so this was what she outlined in this speech uh, to the Women's Club in the, in the Minerva Club. So as well as the political limitations of the broader societal, then within the cultural arena, they've also gotten limitations. Um, And now... As, as what might seem as an eccentric uh, choice at one hand to bring in Marin Mitchell, but that was because of her her book, uh, you know, Storm Over Spain, her writing on on the Spanish Civil War. She she's she's a, she's an odd eccentric figure. She doesn't fit neatly into uh, a political category. She's uh, she's in England. She's she writes for Irish American publications and. Um, writes reports of the Irish in London. What I found one of the fascinating uh, sources was her correspondence with Hannah Sheehy-Skeffington. She's basically sending back gossip about the political... Uh, the Irish uh, politics and the different groups. Now she 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 doesn't like Dagan at all because he gave her a negative review. She quite liked Charles Donnelly, but felt he was being led astray by communist ideas. So in in her correspondence, we're getting a view of a sort of an insider, but she's not along, she's not allied or aligned on the same political ideas. She's and yet when she's writing about her the genesis of her book on Spain, she she feels herself that she's more anarchist uh, in her interpretation, or she writes of the anarchists and, and she has some sympathy uh, there. So she's, she's kind of confused, it seems, in the political lines, definitely Irish Republican and very much uh, she admires Hannah Sheehy-Skeffington hugely, uh, but she she sort of reports back in an idiosyncratic uh, way about the left, the Irish left in London. and But it's it's another view that hasn't been heard. And also, you know, she, um, in terms of a survey of Spanish Civil War literature, I think that even as a curiosity, her reportage in that book it should be considered uh she she just seems to me to have fallen through she's not left enough for many i suppose who want to consider uh you know a socialist writer she's not uh clear cut enough on that but at the same time i mean hers is a witness text i i write about how i i've recruited these their writings it's a, it's it's a cultural history so therefore i'm looking at the texts in in the in the way that they report the times if you like and and you know she certainly was there just before the outbreak of the spanish civil war and um and she also i mean she was very much uh she had a a very great sympathy for the basques and she wrote in irish newspapers about basque situation politics um so it's also the texts that are in there as i say are are i've recruited as witness texts and uh to the, you know, eyewitness accounts as well, but also accounts of, of how um the what the cultural responses were shaping up to this era of crisis and and, and the way in the Irish, Irish framed them in within their own writings. I mean, you get, I mean, Ewart Milne has not just got, the texts which are, the the poems of witness, but he's also got some short stories of of the groups that supported the Spanish Civil War, but the archive issue is ongoing i mean i was talking to the national library i mean the ratio of women's uh, archives which are donated to men's it's, it's, i think it's 1 to 5 or something it's it's you know it's an, it's an extraordinary disparity uh, so you can imagine now, uh, unfortunately also i think women can can be their own worst enemies in terms of believing their archives are Worthy of gathering. I mean, there's Dakin, who who died as an obscure, unacknowledged writer to a certain extent, or where where his dream of writing an Irish Jewish novel didn't come to fruition, and yet he kept everything, and he kept this extraordinary archive. Now Hannah Sheehy Skeffington also knew about the politics of the archive because she she uh, deliberately. Uh, recognized that keeping her own archive, and it's, it's if from even what I've seen in the National Library, it's extraordinary. But that was also part of the politics to say, my my work is worth it. My archives are worth it. My, my life is significant. I think that is also an aspect of it. And in some of the other women, they obviously, uh, you know, for various reasons, neither they nor maybe their extended family or whatever, considered their archives worth preserving you know and there's a bit of both whether whether it's preserved by by the the women themselves or whether once there isn't a plan laid out for what happens to them and and i think this is the time now and i know the national uh, library of ireland are certainly very much interested in looking for archives of the future that will be diverse and will be more representative um And the policies that can encourage that. So that was also the challenge. There weren't the extent of archives. There was the difficult. And this is part of why the women often had, uh, you know, financial hardship in terms of thinking about all these things of the future. I mean, they were often just where's one penny coming from the next one day to the next as well, as were obviously, you know, so all of these factors meant it was harder. But um, I did get an absolute archival gem in uh, the Working Class Movement Library in Salford, uh, which, but again, uh, it's uh, just an example of a woman who, who did value herself, kept her unpublished memoir. But like, it was hidden in the basement, and it was only because I asked, by any chance, was there any material on this of this writer Stella Jackson? That they did a search and they found an unpublished manuscript housed in three huge boxes. Um, so that's 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 again, it's accidental, or somebody keeps it in a hope, some hope that it's discovered, and yet it, <laughs> the trajectory often can be that it's lost or it's hidden or whatever. So you have to try and dig it out,
1: <laughs> right. Yeah, so many challenges facing women writers. Like you said, not even, only just uh, the conditions themselves, but then also the archival question is a whole nother thing. Uh, do you want to say a little bit more just as a way of ending about your next project, which is on Stella Jackson?
0: Well, uh, so Stella Jackson was, I, I came across her via the way that most people uh, defined her, which was in relation to a more famous man, in inverted commas, in that her father was a T, Tommy Jackson, T.A. Jackson, who's a leading a British communist historian who also wrote a Marxist history of Ireland. And his, his archive was in the Working Class Movement Library in Salford. Um, I I was aware of her because uh, she was the partner of Ewart Milne, for uh, a number of years. She met him in the Spanish Medical Aid uh, Committee offices. She was volunteering there and he was working there and uh, she she was very much in, in love with him. They came back to Ireland uh, just at the outbreak of World War II and um, what I found within this unpublished memoir was uh, a whole chapter which is really uh, a very vibrant record of the Irish cultural scene, you know, in Ireland at the outbreak of war. And she becomes very friendly with Sean and May Keating through her relationship with Ewart Milne. Now, she had clearly nursed ambitions, literary ambitions. Uh, she eventually did publish one uh, novel, The Green Cravat, or novelised history of Lord Edward Fitzgerald. But, but in the, the the sections of the memoir that I've managed to see so far, uh, you know, in one way she's a she's a working class woman on the left, who is who is also uh, she's all she's assumed to have the same views as her father. She's assumed to be communist. She's uh, lots of assumptions are made about her, and she she was her own woman in regards to politics, uh, but she is an observer. Of both the 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 um, the scene connected to Spanish medical aid in Britain, and then of the Irish cultural scene, and therefore, now in terms of trying to work out the practicalities of that, I I would, I, I need to go back to Salford and uh, go through the rest of the of of this enormous manuscript. I think that her significance is as a woman's voice who is uh how shall we say i mean she's an observer of the left she's 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 part of the left but she's also you know in terms of her observations about british socialist men uh, are are at times acerbic in the, in the 30s she's she's again in these different groups she's going in uh she's always assumed because of her father to, to have a different politics from what she, from what she did have but her father bequeathed to her a great love of Ireland uh, I mean she, she writes uh, about that sometimes she knew more about Irish history than York Milne did because she, she was she was she was rared and weaned on it uh, according to herself so um, she's she's a type of voice there's been in relation to british women's writing about the 30s there is there is a lot uh, you know there are a lot of uh, more high profile writers but i just think she's fascinating in terms of being uh, a sort of uh, on the ground grassroots worker uh, with her connection to to a broader um, a communist, and 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 uh, you know, a, f- a father who had uh, a, a reputation and and reverence within the you know as a as a communist historian, but how she then tries to break out, and again, this manuscript was unpublished. I don't think it can be published as a, as a whole, but I would love in some way to find uh, a a critical edition where one could have the extracts, particularly. On her observations of both the British thirties um, socialist uh, uh, scenario, I mean, she shared uh, a flat with um, the woman uh, Barbara Castle, who went on to be a Labour minister. Uh, she shared a flat with her again. Uh, she's got an insight into the the minus, minute workings of a lot of different political groups in the 30s and she's also got this insight into the Irish cultural interwar scene through Milne and through her observations and she has the distinction of having been deported from Ireland in the war um, on a charge that she didn't even know what it was Um, and I'm hoping I'm talking to a radio documentary maker about doing a kind of a an archival mystery in relation to her deportation but so uh, the the idea of a, a, a critical introductory essay about her life and work plus excerpts of the um, of the memoir but as i know from my experience with the book you could can, you could can start off with one idea and it can become something else altogether <laughs> So, but that, that's what I would, I'd love to dig her out and get her, uh, as a, as a voice and a witness, um, from the, the, the female left, um, plus an astute observer of the Irish cultural scene in the wartime in her, in her years here. So, um, yeah, that's it. Great.
1: Yeah. That sounds like a a, a fascinating, uh, sounds like a fascinating figure and a really fascinating, uh, Person to work on, uh, so best of luck with that project. And it's been it's been so great to talk to you. I, I think that there's so much in both in this talk and in the book, in terms of anyone interested in uh, scholars and students of like of cultural history and literature of Irish diaspora studies, Jewish studies, social and literary histories of the thirties. I mean, you've really provided, I think, a really um, rich book and a really rich talk, even here that I think is tremendously useful for any scholars working on this time period. So thank you so much. It's been great to talk to you. And I recommend that everyone uh, go out and get themselves a, a copy of Irish writers in the thirties. Uh, I, I think you'll really enjoy it.
0: So thanks Katrina. And I uh, hope to talk to you again soon. Well thank you so much for the wonderful questions and, and the chance to air um, all the, the, the issues and uh, that I hope that the, break, the book will bring out to people. So thanks to New Books uh, podcast uh, New, New Book Network podcast and to yourself. Thank you so much.